0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 319 and I had a conversation with Bo Roberts. He and I have been friends for a long time. I met him in Nashville, Tennessee. He and his wife, Lee Hendry, live there in Nashville and we became buddies and really fascinating couple, super creative and interesting and Really, a part of their community, and I think they are definitely seekers and curious folks and people that really have a pulse on what's going on in the world. Bo just wrote a book called Forever Young, and he called it that because he has the distinction of having been the youngest newspaper editor, the youngest governor's cabinet member, the youngest university vice president, the youngest president of an international world's fair, a journalist. Uh, newspaper editor he was on hand for a lot of very important moments in our history and you know just caught up a little bit so i'm looking forward to you hearing this episode usual stuff hey human podcast is on social media under facebook and instagram my personal social media is susan ruthism and it's under facebook twitter and instagram if you go to HeyHumanPodcast.com, you're going to find all sorts of stuff. The links page where I put information about all of my guests. The merch, which is under store, where you can get all sorts of fun Hey Human shirts and hats and pencil cases, that kind of thing. All the old episodes of Hey Human that you might not see in the list on iTunes because they only hold about 300 at a time. But they're on HeyHumanPodcast.com, you can see all the episodes. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out susanruth.com if you want to know more about me and all the other things I do and see some interviews I've done, join the mailing list. You can go to youtube.com slash official susanruth to find videos that I have posted. If you like music, go look for my music wherever you get music (laughs) so iTunes or Spotify all the places under Susan Ruth my most recent record all I ever wanted was everything and I have a new show that I do with my friend Mara and it's called are we there yet it's a sex and relationship show and you can find that easiest by going to the link on our Instagram page the Instagram page for that is Are We There Yet? IG as an in Instagram. Click on that and you can go right to the channel. We're working on the website, it's almost up, and that'll make things a lot easier, I think, for people to find all this stuff. Thank you for listening to Hey Human. Really exciting episodes coming up. Some really cool interviews that I'm excited about and looking forward to you hearing. Thanks for hanging in there. I'm about to have my sixth year anniversary in another week and a half, and man, I can't believe that much time has gone by, but it's because of you, and you keep listening, and I really appreciate it, and you keep sharing it, and, and supporting uh, with your ears, and, and making reviews, and I really appreciate it. All right, let's get into this. Thank you. Be well. Stay safe. Take care of each other. Okay, here we go. Bo Roberts, welcome to Hey Human.
1: Great to be with you, Susan.
0: You're hailing from Nashville, Tennessee.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Where yeah. you have been many times.
0: Many, many times. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to speak with you. I've known you for a very long time uh, 13 years or so. And uh, it's exciting that I finally get to dig into a little bit of Bo.
1: <laughs> That's great. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, let's start with your beginnings. Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up. I was raised, as they say, in East Tennessee, and uh, I'm living in Middle Tennessee now, as you know. And um, actually, born in Akron, Ohio. My father was working there. Uh, he was from East Tennessee, but he was working there uh, during the Depression because there weren't many jobs in in uh, Tennessee at that time. And then when I was, I just completed the first grade and we moved, he moved back to Tennessee and I moved to Tennessee with um, what was considered then a very heavy Yankee accent and uh, had a lot of resentment for some of the Southern Oh, So we moved to Oak Ridge, which was a fascinating kind of experience during World War II. It's a new city. Uh, uh, ironically, was also the um uh, in and one of the big plants, K 25, was my father's family's uh, cemetery. So I mean this was really moving back to his roots in Anderson and uh in both Oak Ridge and Harriman, Tennessee later. But anyway, it was interesting as a kid being there. Uh I didn't know too much about the war, but I I knew some. And All the housing was prefab. We started out in what they called a a flat house. It was just uh, on stilts. And then later, really moved up down to a uh, three-bedroom suburban house. Uh, Again, all the houses were exactly the same, different sizes. The public transportation system, because hardly anybody had cars. They had cars that couldn't get gas. But the public transportation system in the 40s there, during the war, was fantastic as a seven eight nine year old they I, they had no complaint. i could run go down to the corner get on the bus go to the shopping center which was something new at that time go to the hobby shop or different places and get back on the bus and come home and no worry about security because everything was fenced down uh oakridge was very secure obviously i, I do remember when uh VJ Day occurred, and and it was revealed why Oak Ridge existed when the atomic bomb was dropped, and then second, and and then the uh, when they later in Japan surrendered. And I know there's always controversy about, you know, should we, what should we have done? But I think it's very clear that hundreds of thousands of U. S. lives were not lost because of that effort. Anyway, people were joyous, like dancing in the streets and yelling and screaming and happy and uh, the tour was over primarily so anyway that was my beginning in the tennessee and then we moved back to my dad's hometown where he grew up i had some of the same teachers in school that he had uh finished in the small town of harriman tennessee and immediately went in the air force for a four-year enlistment only stayed three and a half years because i got out early to go to college and by being in the air force I was able to earn the GI Bill, which I could use to go to college, and uh, stationed in uh, Texas and then uh, California, the Bay Area, for a couple of years, which I fell in love with that area. I didn't, uh, I'd been out of the state a lot traveling, but not West, and it was quite an experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, in Albuquerque for a little while and back to Texas. So anyway, been around. And so I headed back to start the University of Tennessee, uh, and I was in a hurry. I had a family, uh, young, a young son born soon after that. And I had, uh, um, I had a GI bill, which will allow you to subside with subsistence. And, uh, but, uh, so I worked part-time, everything I did, you know, uh, uh sell pots and pans. Uh, I, uh, uh, the, I love that the, when the state or the East Sea Fair came to Knoxville in the fall is between quarters. We were in the quarter system then and I could work as a security guard a, or a ticket taker it gave you the uniform and I could do like in 10 days get in uh, probably like 250 hours and, uh, and at $2 an hour that was a lot of money and mm-hmm. I could so anyway Got through and, and finished UT in about two and a half years, and and I went to um, uh, actually before I finished, I majored in journalism. Went to Sevier County, which is up the road in Sevierville and Gatlinburg, as you know, and uh, uh, was uh, started as the uh, news editor for those two newspapers. And then when I graduated in August, I was promoted to editor. And unbeknownst to me. Uh, because uh, I was contacted later, um, contacted by Publishers Auxiliary, that I was at, apparently at 23, the youngest editor in the country, and they did a little write-up about that. And that's the kind of the start of some youngest things that occurred, uh, totally inadvertent as far as I was concerned. I, I didn't set out to be the youngest anything and ended up being, and that's why the, I, I think Lee had talked to you, my wife had talked to you about um my book that I've just released, uh, just been released on, uh, called uh, "Forever Young," and uh, chronicles early part of my career uh, through. Uh, so, I was the youngest editor. Stayed there for uh, about four years. I was actually the owner. Was quite progressive. He, he gave me a lot of latitude. I was approached by the like the daily papers of Knoxville and Chattanooga to come to work for them, and. But they were on uh, on the guild or union wages, and they could only pay me so much. And I couldn't take the pay cut, to go and be with the daily. So I stayed there. And he worked out a unique thing where I was actually buying the newspapers. And, and uh, I don't get too, too far in the weeds. But anyway, it was a really unique thing that he worked out. A great uh, friend of mine, a, um, a guy from Chicago, that at the end of the war, he got he had a bunch of type and got his wife, or driving around the country trying to figure out where they wanted to set up a life and printing operation. And the car broke down a little bit in Gatlinburg. Stayed there a few days, fell in love with it. They didn't have printing, and they lot of hotels that needed printing. And so anyway, uh, but it, it was it was quite an experience. I I learned a lot. I didn't. I never thought growing up in a small town that I would start my career in a small town would be the last thing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I realized later looking back at it. And one of the things, Susan, interestingly for me, um, I, I not kiddingly, factually have to tell my friends or others that, you know, I'm a, I'm not a young author, but I'm a new author. So, so, you know, be, be gentle with me, but I, but I, I've learned a lot. And by finishing this book, which I started about 10 years ago, that I, I, um, Realized by looking back and recording and, and reporting and remembering that I kind of kind of can look back and see what I learned because i th- thinking well i don't want to go back to a small town i'd only lived in a small town until I was barely seventeen and left to go to the air force right out of high school was
0: your was your father in the military or was he a civilian working for a, at oakridge
1: he uh, was in transportation coordinating some And some of the trucking part of the of in Oak Ridge. no No, he was never in the service college was not an option for him in fact his his father had a pretty large construction company there in east tennessee and i went to visit some of the places they built and um but lost it all during the depression and uh, basically well i was definitely the first generation college graduate in my family we were pretty close uh dad and mom were just uh, my mom's from georgia and um, interestingly, they my dad, my dad went up to visit his sister, who was married to this guy who was working in Akron, and he went up to visit them and got a job. Later, his sister's husband' sister came up to visit, and she ended up becoming my mom. So we had brother and sister married to sister and brother. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, wild. Yeah. Anyway, so they came back to Oak Ridge too, and uh, their daughters. I we were first double cousins with the two daughters that they had. They were older than we were, but uh, I have one. I have a younger brother.
0: Did you have a sense of the war as a kid?
1: I did only from the standpoint of a lot of the toys were about war. I, I started building model plane <coughs> model planes that were uh, um, warplanes, you know, U.S. and British and German. And, uh, I know I got fascinated sometimes, frankly, um, uh, with the, the, um, uh, the German uniforms and the use of the swastika with the red armbands and things. And, and I was, um, and I, and I realized, uh, that, uh, Probably that wasn't the smartest thing in the world, <laughs> but, but I was just, you know, it was, it was, to me, it was uniforms, it was guys and, and um, um, and, and soldiers and, and, and planes and, and, uh, so, but I didn't, I don't, I don't think I realized the significance of it until again, later in life. When you look back, I realize that I did do remember seeing several of the, uh, gold stars in windows, you know, people who lost someone in the war. And then I realized later on, visiting within Russia, for example, that I'm just overwhelmed by the, the impact of uh, what I call in Russia the omnipresence of World War II, the statues, the remembrances, everything. Well, I realized we we in the U.S. had lost 400,000 uh, soldiers or casualties, uh, deaths during World War II. Russia was 9 million. I mean, and the other countries you know, millions or hundreds of thousands. So and but I remember, you know, yellow gold stars.
0: What brought you to the idea that you wanted to be a journalist?
1: I really I'm I, I started off I'm a sports nut and I and I um I learned um math uh because I was a baseball fan and I get the newspapers and I get the box scores and I could figure out a a batting average or an earned run average or things that in standings and how many games behind. So I learned math before math was actually taught much. And, and, and so I'm just fascinated with reading about things. And later I got attracted to a couple of, I remember Joseph Conrad wrote these books about the sea and uh, I got swept away by the, the, uh, the aura and the stories of, Ships and ships fighting, and sailing, and uh, realized the impact of the written word. And but I thought most, like in high school, people kept saying I'd be a uh, either a, a broadcaster or a uh, a sports reporter because I was so into sport. And then while I was in the Air Force, I started taking some correspondence courses a few in English, and I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I had some friends of family who were in the business that I had met. Toward the end of my time in the Air Force, I was at this small base in Texas, a special weapons base, right outside of San Antonio. It was a new base, and uh, but they didn't have a s- newspaper. So I talked to the captain who was in charge of my area and said, and he put me in touch with the captain of the special services, they called it, which is the library and a bunch of other stuff. And I said, we need, you know, you know talk to him and I do it in the newspaper and told him I was probably exaggerated a bit, my, my knowledge and experience to the point that probably uh, looking back to one of the most embarrassing uh, faux pas that I've ever done in the, in the newspaper, in the, in, in, in the industry. I was working on this newspaper, which was going to be mimeographed, the Medina Base News. Uh, it was going to be really smart, really smart. And uh, so I was there in the library where my offices were, <laughs> offices in quotes, uh, working on it. And the general, actually, kind of, kind of the base colonel, took him on a tour, and he came by and introduced me as you know, starting the newspaper. He asked me, he said, well, how many pages would it be? And I said, oh, well, I'm not really sure. I think seven or eight. And he kind of looked at me funny and said, okay, and walked on. Well, one thing in printing in a newspaper, that you have, even numbers of pages, you know. You don't have seven pages, and and I didn't. I wasn't even smart enough to know that. That was. The, I look back at that later, and I, tell you, you know. You think you know something, and then realize you don't know much. Keep, <laughs> keep, keep it humble. So I started in journalism, and I I loved it. And and while I was in school, uh, I this friend of I became a friend approached me. He wanted to start a suburban newspaper, West Knoxville News, and wanted me to be editor at the, uh, you know, part-time as the, pretty good then, actually, $50 a week, you know, I was going to get, it's a weekly, weekly publication, so I did that for the last year or so, or a year and a half or so, I was in college, interestingly, this fellow named Jack Johnson, and he, he decided to leave the business, and he went on to Nashville to get in the music business. Said I've got this new deal. Says it's going to be great. I just kind of rolled my eyes. Okay, what is it, Jack? Said I've got a black country singer, and he really is good. And um, I said, well, oh yeah, that's great, Jack. And
0: Charlie Pride.
1: Charlie Pride. Anyway, I I, um, loved it, Um, and it's. I guess it's you know part of it is the deadlines, and it takes things out of. A theory and puts it into reality. That you're going to be exposing yourself through the written word uh, every day or every week. In my case, and telling the stories of what what's happening in a whatever community a section of a community. It's kind of challenging, and I and I had a, a boss, a publisher in Sevierville when I started up there, who I said was just very. He set me up in an office. He. I had an assistant, my secretary, the social editor, a whole bunch of other things.
0: It must have been an exciting couple eras coming up as a journalist. I mean, going into the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I imagine the stories were coming like crazy.
1: Again, I wasn't covering national news at that time. Well, much. I was there in one little, in Sevier County, if you know, East, you know Tennessee a little bit, East Tennessee is very Republican. Well, Sevier County is... Very, very Republican. I was a Democrat growing up in East Tennessee, and, and um, I used to kid and say we had our conventions on our phone booth, you know, this type of thing. But in Sevier County, so in 1960, i graduated, I'd been named editor, and of course, there was the big congressional presidential race between uh, John Kennedy and, and, and Nixon. We had dual editorials. I as editor and he as publisher. I endorsing John F. Kennedy, in Sevier County and and he and then Richard Nixon, longtime Republican. Well I didn't do very well there. Was, the, 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 the breakdown it was 87% Republican and 13% Democrat. So were, during the um not too long, you know, end, end of that term, 63, when Kennedy was assassinated, I actually put the columns in my book. It was it hit me a lot. But I I, I went out and interviewed people right afterward and and in Sevier County and this 87% Republican. And it's interesting how, uh, you know, you're everybody's Republican and Democrat, but everybody was an American first and how it impacted everybody. That was a lesson, I guess I learned it as I was going, but again, reflecting back on it, that, um, you know, that people can will rise above. Great lessons for, you know, a young guy Thought he knew a lot, realized how much he didn't know, and learn more every day.
0: How do you see it as it reflects back to modern days? How now here we are in 2022, and the political landscape is chaotic at best.
1: It's it's uh, frighteningly chaotic, and 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 I, I'm I'm sort of the eternal optimist, but it's it's you have to fight to be optimistic today because I think you we know, are we have. This country has survived a lot. Recessions and, and and hurricanes and tornadoes and a war among ourselves for four years. Highest death totals of any wars have been involved. We've survived that. So I'm I'm thinking we could survive this. It, it is difficult, kind of egotistical now that I've published a book that I'm I've been working on my next. a part of it, most of it's already written, which is I do op-ed columns. So it's an accumulation of 60 or 70 of those over the years. It's a lot of politics. The working title, I'm not sure what it'll end up being, but the working title is Flaming Moderate. (laughs) I'm I'm a Democrat, but I don't like the far left. I'm glad they're part of our party. We're big enough to have them. But at least our extremists are not violent. And what's happened in the last five or six years, a, a division of people has become... Violent, in that. So, what um, the Trump administration did, what he did, was he 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 widened the right to include people who weren't on the right or the left. They were just violent, and they're part of it. And that's showing every day now. We're seeing that, reminding again of January sixth. The the thing about people talking with each other, talking to each other, with each other, uh, it didn't start with Trump. It started. Um, I I think a lot of it, you can almost look at some timing, uh, a lot of it uh, started when Fox News started. It wasn't just Fox News. They were pretty, a little more moderate when they first started and began seeing ratings go. And the other side, CNN, I was a big advocate and devotee of CNN, from a news channel to an opinion channel. People could spend all day listening to things that they want to hear. Yeah. As opposed to listening to another side. So I see when, they, when an issue comes up, they'll gather their, quote, panel of, of people who all agree with each other and smile together and smirk together or frown together, you know, whatever the issue may be. And, and, uh, uh, and, and so it's just more and more difficult to have a communication. I wrote a column back in 2009 in Obama's first year. The Health Care Act was going through Congress. And the Nashville our national Congressman Jim Cooper is a brilliant individual, his dear friend, but a brilliant individual, one in of the brightest guys that I've ever known. very he was a blue Dog Democrat to call him, and he was very conservative fiscal in but he anyway that an amendment came up for one of the um, acts on the as going through Congress, and he voted against it and so immediately some people in the national attack said, You can't do this. You're either with us, you've got to be, you know, you got to be liberal all the way, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. At so the same time, same time frame. Another friend of you know, the other party, Bob Corker, was a newcomer to the U.S. Senate. And we knew Bob personally, Lee, my wife was in their wedding. A, a really also brilliant business person and very successful in business, very successful as a two-term mayor in Chattanooga, turning it around, doing a whole lot of things. He was working on, you know, if we remember, at that time frame, 2008, 2009, we were going through a recession, and they were working through Congress on new banking laws because of bank failures. And Corker came out. I'd be glad to work with, you know, the, the majority party and working on these bank regulations. And he gets slammed from the right, you know, saying, you can't talk, you can't even talk to these people can't do that you know and so i wrote this column steelers wheel i think recorded this song called stuck in the middle with you uh clowns of the left me jokers to the right uh you know and and, and that's and that was 13 years ago and just as two little examples but i think very kind of telling examples of what, what where we are. and this was long before you know the Violence and the Trump and all the craziness that came about. Yeah. We are in difficult times, and I and, and one of the reasons I wanted to get this book out this year was uh, this is the 40th anniversary of a large event in East Tennessee that I I was president and CEO of the 1982 World's Fair. I thought I've been working on this off and on over the years. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to finish it, this is the last year have a market for it. I don't know if that market mail me 10 people, but whatever it is, it's probably going to be this year. Yeah. I've written this column now that I think will be in, in this this week in the papers. Taking that event, 1982 World's Fair, and we, we went through a Republican, Gerald Ford, a Democrat, Jimmy Carter, and a Republican, Ronald Reagan, as president. We went through a Democrat and a Republican as governor. And, and as we had a new had a Republican and a Senate senator of each party, even though it was nonpartisan, the mayor of Knoxville had been a Republican when we started, he started the effort. And but he got upset by a friend of mine who was a Democrat, and, but it's again, it's nonpartisan, but both of them had supported this event. And so my point is it was not just that it was nice to have bipartisan support. To make this happen, it would not have happened. Period. Without strong, strong not only support but action, we had so many hurdles we had to go through at the local level, state level, national level. If we didn't have bipartisan, active bipartisan support and and action, it would never have happened. And up, it was it was an event that. Um, uh have a special category, which means you had a theme. Ours was energy, which was a pretty big thing right then, kind of big now again. Um, and But it was in terms of the number of countries and the attendance, which was over 11 million in six months. It was larger than the hemisphere in San Antonio, the Seattle World's Fair, the Spokane World's Fair, and the New Orleans World's Fair, which happened two years after. So anyway, it was very successful, but it would not have happened of this group coming together. And I, I put in there the, one, the name of the, one of the chapters is you' you're doing a what, where? In the World's Fair, a, monthly, a what, where? And the, so we had to answer that question that one of the management secrets we had, ignorance. We didn't know what we couldn't do. We didn't let what people said you couldn't do stop us from doing it. And I say we in the broadest sense of a community, of the political leadership state, and on and on but it's it's i can't imagine a bipartisan effort like that
0: that's a that's a frustrating thing is that there is a there's little room for nuance anymore in politics and if you are if you have an idea about something and you voice that idea that people come out of the woodwork they threaten your family they dox your address it's It's wild out there, and to the point where now people can't even have a personal opinion.
1: Yeah. Well, and we've got to have people with a personal opinion. And one of the things I've been, you know, let's say lifelong Democrat. Had a mother and father who were so avid. They were the first Democrats in their family. They were recession Democrats coming out of a long line of Republican fam- families in East Tennessee. I have a lot of Republican friends, particularly growing up and with them. East Tennessee. And I know that most of them did not vote for Trump, for example, in in the first race or the second. Uh, But in the first go around, they weren't, I don't know, I I never asked, I wouldn't put him on the spot. But I know that they didn't vote for Trump, but I don't think any of them voted for Hillary. And to be honest with you, I wasn't, you know, terribly excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. I did. And now it's become, and what he did it was supposed to make it even more uh divisive, even with his in his own party. It's right. a very
0: strange time. I just read this morning that the Supreme Court is voting on changing the voter laws here. And when when that happens, then I feel like all ground will be lost.
1: It is frightening, and that's why, you know, as I say I'm an optimist, but it's really gotta dig deep to dig it out now. But I think that.
0: It's I'm tough good. in the highest court in the land, which is supposed to be made up of people who are nonpartisan, who are there about the law and the law alone, who are acting with a strong arm of a political party. That's insane because they're not supposed to vote on their party or their religious beliefs or any of those things. And that's what they're doing, which is yep. completely insane considering what the Supreme Court is actually supposed to be for.
1: Well, and that's where its it's got to stay active. We've got to have make sure who has control and then so that when those replacements can come, but also that if they're interpreting the law, then the law can change if the right people change the law. It's a constant battle, but it is, it can be very depressing. We just can't let it depress us to the point that you can't take action. So we have to know what the shortcomings are and that Or some of your efforts aren't going to be worth anything, but you have to keep trying. Yeah. Right.
0: Rhetoric gets so manipulated. For example, I'm pro choice, but I'm fine with people who are pro life. If they want to be pro life, fine. But I'm not okay with them deciding that because they're pro life, that everyone else should be pro life. It doesn't, that's that I'm not okay. Or to put a religion that they believe in as if everyone in the country abides by that religion, which is, is just such a bigotry inlaid inside a systemic issue,
1: really. Yeah, very true. And I think it's, uh, you know, go back to the founding fathers. A big driver of why they were here in this country was was a lack of religious freedom, freedom of and from religion.
0: And when people don't, when they, they use the founding fathers in the Constitution as an argument, I think uh, women didn't, Say have a say in the constitution first of all in an abortion right. a woman's business the men would not have busied themselves or worried themselves with that at all. Anyway, we're getting a little off the track, but I'm curious to know. I I'm assuming that you covered when Martin Luther King, when Dr. King was assassinated. Yes. What was? Do you remember the feeling through Tennessee and through the people that you interviewed, and just the overall feeling of those? those times and that moment in particular.
1: Well I, I definitely do because I was in a, a very interesting position. I was chief of staff for the governor of the state of Tennessee when that assassination occurred. Now I was happened to be in Washington. I, I did a lot of work in Washington when it occurred and and we didn't have cell phones. But I, I didn't learn about it until I went I was out with dinner with friends, came back to my hotel around sometime between 8 and 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock. I had all these calls waiting you know, from the governor's office and talked and found out about it. Well, in D.C. at that time, you couldn't, from National Airport Force, flights didn't leave after 10 o'clock. The governor reacted and, uh, pretty quickly and pretty heavily and some people's interpretation within the state after the, after, after the assassination in, in the state of Tennessee, they called out the national guard, particularly in Memphis and Nashville and in, in some of the urban areas and, and had tanks and other things out, you know, guarding and making sure and got some criticism. that. I left the hotel the next morning and DC to the airport. It was, um, I could see some fires starting. I could see some looting going on some areas. Just going to the airport, and I'll never forget you know, I taking off a plane the next mo- that morning, circling out as you do, you know, when you leave, going circling back over the and it's a clear day. And I looked out, and it looked like a photograph from World War II. The smoke coming up and the fires and all over all over. The, the, the DC. I kept thinking, this is World War II, and this is horrible. And got, began hearing about Detroit and some other things. Well, I flew back in to the governor's residence, and again, it was the streets were pretty deserted because of the, the guards. They had things shut down. I got there, and it was an interesting dynamic that was going on: the head of the highway patrol, the head of the state police, the head of the National Guard. These are all friends of mine and I'm in the cabinet together. And the governor uh and even though I had been in the military, I I was not a necessarily I wasn't a law and order. I was for law and order, but I was not, you know, I wasn't a policeman. I wasn't and that wasn't my training. And I, I made only one little contribution. As it got toward night, the guards were out and they're around Tennessee State University, HBCU, you know, state state school, my school there. And I remember the head of the national guard was saying they had these new scopes on their rifles that actually could see at night it was some new invention that you know they'd come out and he said at one point i hope none of our boys get hurt and i made my only contribution and i said i hope nobody gets hurt and it was kind of a silence for a few minutes and, and everybody said well yeah 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 Tennessee is dealing with Tennessee and, and the result, even though there was some criticism of the way the governor handled it the way we handled it. Um, the only death that occurred in that whole, whole was Martin Luther King. No other fatality occurred. There was injuries, but not much, not much occurred in Tennessee. So I, I, yes. Do I remember, but the passion and, and the, 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 uh, you know the minority community felt we were the first, by the way, the first administration uh, to have a, a minority in the cabinet. We had this attorney, later a judge from Memphis, who became had his office next to mine there in the state capitol. He was the first cabinet member, a minority, in then his Tennessee's history. My governor was a farmer. He liked to get started early in the morning. His staff, his immediate staff, me and. Would meet with him at seven o'clock every morning when he was in town, and uh, when we were town, and uh, and then between eight and seven and eight, we'd bring all the things we had wanted to cover, and then between eight and nine, we'd stay, and the cabinet members like safety department, highway department, whatever would come in with any situations or problems or needs or whatever requests that they had, and we'd deal with them. Together, and you're living in Nashville, so you're familiar with where I 40 is in Nashville. And this had all happened earlier and before I was involved in the state government. But um, there were some lawsuits that had been filed by the minority communities about what the uh, routing of I 40, particularly in Memphis, but also in Nashville, even though it was already being built, I 40. They just ripped it right through the um, uh, black community. And as, if you think about it, you've been around there, Jefferson Street. They were talking, and the highway commissioner, who was, was not a bad guy, it was a good guy, came in. He was chatting on the said, Why did they put it through there? And he said, well, you know, it was over there. Nothing but, 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 but a bunch of N-words live there. Then he looked up at my friend, H.T. Lockard, and said, bub, bub, bub. Well, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, you know what I mean. And H.D. just continued to look at it. And the governor said, well, Charlie, his name was Charlie. As the commissioner said, it's a different day. And I just thought about the presence, how important, just the presence of having him involved. And that sends a whole message about a whole, where this was 1968 or 1967, when we took office. So, uh, it was one small step, but, man, we had so many more steps to go. The issues were not Republican and Democrat. The issues were progress or not. And some people, they didn't want to change. You know, that was, so it was kind of the battle against to change things. (laughs) Changing of a culture and of an attitude that needed to occur. And we did some of that, were able to do some of that during that time. But it was, it, it it brought home how much more there was to and even today more than we obviously need to do
0: yeah i mean it is interesting anytime i interview somebody that has been on the planet for a little while and seen the changes and and to see things like the desegregation of schools and right yeah and uh and the voting rights act and the dissolution of certain things and and creations of other things to protect kids and to protect minorities and the the disenfranchised and the you know the underdog these days. I feel a lot of stress about where everything is heading. I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm concerned. And when you say you're an optimist, I want to be an optimist desperately. That is tricky. But when I talk to people who have been through so many things and seen so much change. And seeing it do uh, an ebb and flow or two steps forward, one step backward, then it does give me some hope
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you know well,
0: more than I, therefore, you know, because you've seen more than I have seen.
1: Well, you know, and and, and it's not, you know, that you, you you hope that, you know, with the experience and with the experiences that you have, whether you want to or not, you have experiences over a long period of time and you do see the ebb and flow and you. You know, hopefully, you learned something from that. But it's a—I agree—it's a very dangerous time we're in right now. And I think just in the last three days, think about this testimony. Think about how how close this country was, and hopefully, will not return to being in an actual a revolution. You might say, going away from the being a, a country of law. Well, I never thought that I would say something about Representative Cheney because I, 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 I was not a fan of her father's. And, the, you know, when he was last president, when he, uh, I felt mostly responsible for the war in Iraq. And what she said, I think, is so true. Is, right now, we're a two party system. And if the major party, the Republican Party, is going to choose between Trump or being right or having to live with that, and that's why I'm part of what I'm doing. My little bitty thing is to I'm talking to some of my Republican friends and trying to make them feel guilty. Not only I know how they feel, but I say you got to you got to do something. You got to you got to take help take back. It's much easier just to sit and watch, and I'm not. We all want to do that, so I, I'm not attacking that personally, but I sort of am So I want you to feel guilty about not changing your party. I so, said we've got our problems in my part. and but I want to I want to work like hell to beat you, but I don't want to be afraid to lose to you. And right now, I'm well,
0: that's afraid. true. I mean, it's such well put. Being afraid of what will happen should we lose—never in the history of. Yep. American politics, has there been a feeling of, if the other side wins, panic ensues? Like, what does that mean? What does that mean for millions of people who've suddenly become unsafe, just existing?
1: Right. It is It is frightening. And I I think we're at a crossroads. I, really
0: do. Uh, I do, too. I absolutely I, I, do. And you bring up the, you know, don't just sit there. I mean, that's the thing. Historically. We've seen what happens when people don't speak up, when they do just go along to get along and it's not pretty.
1: No. You know, when you think you you know it all, you don't know anything. But I I remember one of the columns I did just recently, I don't know, two months ago, talking about, in essence, Republicans, what they, some things I thought they needed to do. And I called in the print, you know, and published in National Announcement. Among it, I called Trump is a, a despicable human being, not just a politician, but a human being. I talked to somebody the other day, and I came. Up and I said, "Yeah, I remember you doing." This. I said, "said But you know, the problem is, you insult despicable human beings when you call them that." Probably the the worst example, or the best example of the worst happening minority leader in, in uh, Congress, McCarthy, when he. You know when he's been quoted as saying how bad it was, what was happening, and how he turned tail is now. You know, marching hand in hand, glove in glove. Somebody is going to be known one day as a great patriot. Uh, Liz Cheney is in that is in that category right That's now. A
0: great example of somebody who I don't agree with her policies oh, on I don't levels, but my God, she is a true patriot in my mind. She's absolutely there to to stand up for this country and what's right and that's the that's the beauty of nuance that i can respect the human being the woman who is standing up and saying this is not okay and also not be okay with her politics
1: you know if you know we get through this fight like hell against some of the policies that she believes in uh but you don't fight like a hell against her right if she's not going to to come back and and you know and lose and say you know I won't take my marbles and go home like I we're guess we're pre- preaching to our own choirs I
0: know today. we are. we are although a lot of different people listen to the show and I think they know well, I do try to stay you know even in this show and talk to people and all their beliefs and all that but there is a time when I think it's important to say you know what some things are just, it's beyond politics. There is cruelty. There is, uh, there is despair. There is violence. There is uh, treating human beings as if they were less than and that they don't have a voice over themselves. All that is just fundamentally, that's not politics. That's humanity gone wrong.
1: Exactly. Yeah, couldn't couldn't could agree with you more. And it's, um, I, I don't know, it, it's it's like the replacement theory. It's it's yeah, having, you know, well, let's let's change racism to replacement theory. I look back at at, at Bannon and others, you know, when Trump was starting, and I, uh, a student of history, as many others are. I'm not. I don't consider myself an expert historian, but I see the Nazi playbook. You know, Himmel would have been very pleased.
0: Oh, so proud! That. And people think that that's hyperbole, but it's it's history, and it's <laughs> it's a brilliant strategy. Absolutely, fucking terrifying.
1: Brilliant so tell, but terrifying.
0: <laughs> tell everybody about how they can find your book and know more about you.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I I get my commercial in, uh, the name of it is forever young. Uh, and it's titled then the subtitle is, uh, I think I can remember it all. Uh, the youngest as a world's fair president, as an editor, as a governor's cabinet leader, and as the university of Tennessee by by vice president. So each of those steps along the way, when I was world's fair, president, I was 39. And, uh, and it's amazing after 39, you're not become the youngest of anything anymore, but uh, maybe I'll be the youngest someday of the octogenarian club or something. But it's, it's forever young uh, by Bo Roberts uh, on Amazon Barnes and Noble books, a million uh, available uh, both the the uh, ebook and the hardcover uh, for sale there. And uh, some bookstores, I guess will be carrying it eventually, but uh uh, like I was able to order one from my bookstore that I like here.
0: Is Pranas is going to carry it there in Nashville, Tennessee? You
1: know, I I think they will. I've ordered. You can order it from them. I've ordered a copy from them, and we're talking about about doing a a, pres- a, a signing and presentation.
0: Wonderful. And Remember do you have a website?
1: RobertStrategies.com. Uh, dot com. It has uh, like all my columns. For example in chronological order in there and uh, some other things that some things I've done. And that's com. robertsstrategies.com and, uh, and uh, forever young by Bo Roberts.
0: Oh, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I, I do. I I like what you're doing. I like you and I like your attitude and, and um, we'll, we'll hang in there. We, 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 we agree on so many things that we've got to just, Put them into practice. Make them happen.
0: Thank you,
1: Susan.
0: Please give my love to Lee.
1: I will. She sends her love as well.
0: All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.